Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royfield Brown, who's back in the Bay Area, soaking up some liberal progressive sun before I return back to the UK for Xmas to enjoy a festive Brexit Britain. Now, today I'm joined by a friend of the show, Doug. I know my wines, Levy, in uh, Marin <laughs> County and by Emma off with the Royals' heads, Burnell <laughs> in London. Say hello, folks. Hiya. Hello there. So there has still been a reaction to the Chris Williamson interview, which I did a couple of episodes ago. Here is a call from Ben. Hello, Royfield. Uh, I'd just like to add my two cents to the conversation about Chris Williamson and anti-Semitism. As a uh, younger Jewish person, I am getting very sick of anti-Semitism being used as a weapon against liberal politicians uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. I am also, this is going to be a particularly increasingly divisive and destructive tactic going forward, given that uh, younger Jews are less and less inclined to be uh, necessarily Zionist in their attitude. Uh, I think the entire third rail that everyone managed to avoid touching during that interview was the question of Israel, which is the source of a lot of the accusations of anti-Semitism in the current context. Um, and uh, often, I will just say, baseless accusations. Um, I don't know Chris Williamson very well or the background to his situation, so I can't really say whether or not he would count as uh, anti-Semitic. Uh, however, uh, this uh, this the weaponization of anti-Semitism, as I said, uh, has become a standard tactic. Oh, uh, Ben got cut off in his prime. Um, 
Emma, I, I spoke a little bit about this, but why don't you have the last word on Chris Williamson, considering um, that he, he's not even going to be standing anyway because he's been uh, kicked out of the Labour Party. Yeah, thank God for that. Um, I mean, this is a bad day for me to hear that call because today the evidence from the Jewish Labour movement um, to the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is an independent body which is investigating the Labour Party for institutional anti-Semitism, only the second time, by the way, that any political party in the UK has been investigated. Uh, The first one was the British National Party, so that's a lovely list to be on. I feel so proud. Um, Chris Williamson was a big part of the problem, but he was not the only part of the problem. He was just one of the many, many parts of the problem. Um, Today we found out that over 70 staff and this is not just the stuff about volunteers 70 staff staff and former staff members of the Labour Party have submitted evidence of anti-semitism to that inquiry that inquiry is going to be absolute dynamite and it is not weaponization because these are people who have dedicated their lives to this party the last thing they want to do is destroy the party but they cannot stand silent and you, you know, that that's where we're at. And frankly, it breaks my heart. And I'm not going to stand silent because it's electorally convenient to do so. Uh, powerful words. And uh, we live in troubling times, specifically when we think that um, one of the reasons for the existence of, of the party that uh, we both sign up to is to stamp out Uh, prejudice and uh, discrimination. Here is a call from Luke regarding the British general election. Hi Royfield, Um, I believe you're about to do an episode on the uh, British general election that we've got coming up next week. Um, I'm just on my way to the bus, uh, so this is going to sound a little bit garbled possibly, but I uh, wanted to get my tuppence worth in. Um, So really we are facing quite a dreadful choice here. does seem that we're choosing between an anti-Semite who is going to be tanking the economy by uh, profligate overspending uh, and uh, an Islamophobe who is also going to tank the economy by taking us out of the European Union uh, any which way uh, without much of a care of what he does to the economy. Um, So it really is quite dreadful. Personally, on a personal level, I uh, also have a fairly bad choice because uh, I'm a member of the Green Party and uh, I was uh, hoping to be able to vote for the Green Party, but they have stood down in favour of uh, a Liberal Democrat as a part of a sort of anti-Brexit alliance and the uh, Liberal Democrat that they stood down in favour of is actually an ex-Tory. So uh, one way or another, I'm going to be ending up voting for a Tory, which I never thought I would be doing. Anyway, good luck. Hope the show goes well and uh, hopefully come up for air sometime next week and we'll see what has transpired. Kind of interestingly, and I think we will talk about this in the show, but there has been at the start of this election campaign lots of talk of electoral packs and tactical voting. Um, How much do you think this will actually play out in the actual election results, though, Emma? Uh, Well, um, I I honestly don't know. There's lots and lots of fuss around it. There's more noise around um, electoral packs or informal electoral packs, uh, which is tactical voting, than there has been before. that doesn't mean it's going to come to anything. Um, I think 
this more than any other election has felt like 650 by-elections rather than one big general election. Um, and all the parties, because of the sort of Remain Alliance stuff, because of the way that the Brexit party have behaved, it does feel much more like parties are taking a seat-by-seat approach. We shall see how that pans out or whether it actually it follows the national numbers and we see that the Tories get the majority that's expected. Doug, I know that you're a big Leonard Cohen fan, aren't you? I am. Oh, that's true. Great, great. All right, then you can answer this call then. You took me, took my breath away. I said that somewhat tongue in cheek, but uh, so you'll know what the heck Ben is talking about here now. Listen, Brown, we don't say anything unkind about Leonard Cohen in these parts. Sure, his music may sound like it fell off the back of a truck in the early 80s, it but does. his uh, lyrical presentation is poetical in a very high degree, and uh, his compositional talents are shown very clearly by the fact that his songs have been covered more times by more people than uh, you can shake a stick at. Sure, some of those people are annoying. Very, very annoying. But you can't deny the compositional talents of the man himself. Uh, Can I just quickly say, before we go over to you, Doug, um, I don't understand the uh, conversational uh, genius of the man because his voice just sounds like a funeral dirge to me. Uh, But it's not aimed at me. It's aimed at women of a certain age. As uh, a caller in the last episode clearly admitted, she said, "I I was a young woman in the late 60s and Leonard Cohen spoke to me and he still does now. So the very fact that you, Emma, uh, are at one with his music, heaven only knows how that has come about. But Doug... Please explain to me, because I seem to be in in a a total minority of one here of not getting this man's music. So I kind of got into Leonard Cohen's music kind of backwards, but that may be why I appreciate his genius the way I do. Um, Although tracing through my records, it turns out I actually did see him perform when I was a college student at Berkeley uh, a very long time ago, but he made no impression on me at the time. Um, fast forward 20 plus years later, and I'm hanging out with musicians who revered him. And I still didn't hear much of his music from him, but I heard these other musicians who lovingly so covered his saying, songs. Other people interpret his music better than him that's basically what you've said so he ain't all that uh in a week that has seen speaker of the house nancy pelosi say that democrats will draft articles impeachment against trump we ask just what has been happening in the most important uk election since 1945 in a week's time next thursday night the polls will have closed the ballot boxes will be on their way to the counting centers and the first indications will emerge of the likely outcome of this election campaign. No surprise then that the parties have stepped up their campaigning today. Boris Johnson was promising to pass his Brexit deal and hold a budget within 100 days if elected. Those plans are pure fantasy, according to the Lib Dems, while Labour promised to recruit 20,000 extra teachers to make up for what it calls a decade of Tory failure. Emma. Current opinion polls are saying that the Conservatives are at 42%, Labour is at 32%, the Lib Dems down at 14%, Brexit parties at 4%, SNP 4%, Greens 3%, and then there are some also rands. Um, will we see tactical voting arrangements in the uh, in the elections? And are the polls 
kind of weighted against Labour because in the last election, the final published polls underestimated the Labour vote by some five points. Is this a trend that is going to be repeated? Are we going to have a hung parliament? Loads of questions there. Give us your answers. Um, the odds are against a hung parliament at the moment. Um, it's about 75% likelihood that the Conservatives will win a majority. But if you recall, in 2016, uh, that was roughly the same chance that 538 were giving Donald Trump. So stranger things have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a much, much lower chance of anything other than the two options being a hung parliament or a Conservative majority. It doesn't look like Labour have done enough or will do enough um, in the next week to put them into anything like majority territory. Um, it's a very odd election. It's, I mean, it's weird having an election in the winter anyway for us over here. We never do this normally. I think the last time was like 1974. So all the dynamics that usually play out in an election are are different they've shifted people don't open their doors in the dark so it's much harder to canvas um you can't do those big rallies that jeremy corbyn used so effectively last time around because you just can't get the tv shots in the dark again um we it's predicted that it's going to snow really heavily next week in certain parts of the Mm. country if that's the case who does that affect does it stop the I mean, one of the things that I've heard is that some conservatives are nervous about the Labour leavers that they're hoping to switch over to them, who are kind of willing to do it, but are looking for any excuse not to do it. So if they can just go, you know what, I'm not going to trudge out in the snow to vote bloody Tory, that might affect the the margin. I mean, it's all these things just playing at the margins that could make quite a significant difference to seat share. I don't remember the 1970 election. So say, I, I can't remember that uh, I was around for it. I was one. Right. But the 1970 election, there was bad weather. And that's supposed to be the reason why they said that uh, Wilson, who was leading in the polls, actually lost. I, I, there's something about Labour voters being a little bit more fair weather than Tory voters historically. This is true. Um, so, again, that could be the other. I mean, it depends because Goodness, I would say... I just say, made a bit of a pun there, Emma. <laughs> I didn't even realise. <laughs> um, I mean, the thing is, is that the traditional sets of voters that the two mm-hmm. parties relied on in the 1970s have almost reversed now, um, in t- certainly in terms of class. Um, so we just, it, will it have the same effect? I don't know. In terms of age, the Tory vote is generally much older. Um, so the student vote, something like 70% Labour at the moment, which is, you know, in, insanely high. Um, will they turn out? Will they turn out in their student towns, which is where the Labour Party wants them to vote generally, because they'll have come from big cities. I mean, I'm, massively oversimplifying but they'll have come from big cities and quite likely safe labour seats to small university towns which are these big marginal places where labour really wants to turn out their vote um so again these are just tiny little differences that could make huge difference in a large number of the very marginal seats uh, with a week to go before uh, the election um, actually happens if we are going to see any tactical voting, are there any specific constituencies that we should keep an eye on? Well, it's the the, the hyper marginals, really. Um, what you want is a seat where 
it's a clear Labour-Tory split. If that's a Tory seat, the Brexit party will have stood down. So will their voters turn out for the Tories? Yes, it's looking increasingly likely that they will. Um, If it's a Labour seat, will the Lib Dems hold their nose and vote Labour? Will the Greens hold their nose and vote Labour? That is a bigger question. Um, And it's indicating there has been a definite squeeze on the Lib Dem vote. So there is an indication that that is what's going to happen. Whether it will happen enough uh, to make the difference, we shall see. Mm. Um, Doug, very obviously, over here in America land, uh, we have many things to occupy us uh, politically. Um, Obviously, uh, your vaunted president has been uh, wandering all over the the world stage recently in London. Uh, There are impeachment hearings. Uh, There are a whole plethora of things to distract the American public. But I'm sure you're going to tell me that the British election has been up front and centre in American news. Well, I think part of what we've noticed is that Boris Johnson seems like a world leader and a statesman all of a sudden. (gasps) I beg your pardon? (laughs) Hardly. Have you been watching Fox News again? (laughs) In comparison to a certain other individual, uh, Johnson has been very measured. And in fact, uh, you know, the terrorist attack uh, over the weekend, Johnson kind of did what you would expect a leader to do, which I don't think too many people really expect. I mean, he's usually been the flamethrower. No, he was a flamethrower. He really was. Emma, 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 I'm just going to cue you up, right? You go. (laughs) I'm going to sit back for the next three minutes. Go. (laughs) No, um, I mean, I would say that over here, the, 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 the complete opposite has been the perception. He politicised it I- immediately. Over here, it is not expected, even in an election campaign, that you would politicise uh, an event like that. So the Labour Party ca- suspended their campaigning and Boris Johnson went on the TV and blamed, firstly, legislation that was brought in by the Labour Party that wasn't responsible for the differential sentencing, then said that he tried to pass something on differential sentencing and it had failed in the House of Commons. It had passed by 16 votes. Boris Johnson lied twice on the same day as the attacks. He really hasn't acted like a statesman and it's been quite shocking, this, this campaign. I mean, I'm not sure any of the parties really deserve to win this election. None of them have equipped themselves particularly well but if anyone deserves to lose it it's the Tories it's been a campaign that has just been about um Trumpian style lies from start to finish it's really shocking that that's that that's the impression that you've got over there because seriously all of our news media is saying we don't know how to cope with the fact that this guy is coming on the tv and lying to us and then will not be interviewed by the key interviewer who would actually be uh, yeah will not sit down for the half an hour with the key political interviewer but will do the on the sofa with pip that's absolutely depressing because you're right the impression that we're getting is different though it is obvious i mean he definitely did make the political jabs uh over the uh, the differential sentencing which uh, I mean, the whole thing is sad. Um, it does point to the the bigger problem, which is the way people are getting information has changed. The other thing which uh, has 
intrigued me is you mentioned that it's difficult for people to campaign given the uh, the weather and the time of year and so on. I've also seen that the digital campaigning has taken some rather devious turns. What impact do you mm. think that's going to have? That's been really interesting because it's kind of had – we don't know what people are seeing necessarily – that's one of the big problems, particularly on Facebook. We don't know what memes are being shared um, that make a difference in people's political thinking. What has cut through is that the Tories are playing a dirty tricks campaign. Um, that has been brought up independently by people. Um, for example, during the first leaders debate, they changed their um, Twitter handle to Fact Check UK. Now, most ordinary voters aren't on Twitter, but that got cut through. People people knew that they'd done that and they felt it was out of order. So there's kind of a dual thing going on, which is people know the Tories are behaving very badly, but do they also know that the memes that their uncle and, um, uh, or, and their, their Brexity aren't sharing are also crap? That's the, that's the $24,000 question. There are also been some altered videos I, I had heard. Uh, have you seen any of those? Yeah. And any idea where those are coming yeah. from? They were, there, there was a video release, released formally by Conservative Party HQ where they edited it to look like Keir Starmer had no answer to a question that he had answered immediately. Keir Starmer is the shadow Brexit secretary, so um, Labour's Brexit spokesperson. Um, that That wasn't, you know, some random partisan circulating stuff on on their own bat that was directly released by the conservative party can i just say that i've got a man crush on keir starmer just just to bring this I conversation don't get the keir starmer yeah. love i mean loads of my friends do and i'm like don't get a bit of an empty shirt but i mean you know quite a nice empty shirt what are you talking about the man is absolutely he's been absolutely forensic we're taking apart the, the Tories over Brexit. He is, you know, he is a lawyer and you can absolutely see that in the I way just, that... He... Honestly, I just think it's a man thing. Hmm. All right, then. I okay, don't... I'll, I'll move on. I'll move on. <laughs> I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Keir Starmer over um, uh, whoever it is, Dominic Raab, any day of the week. Absolutely. I just don't think mm. it's that hard to take Dominic Raab apart because this is the guy who literally about a day after he became Brexit secretary, he said, oh, it turns out we're really quite reliant on the Dover-Calais crossing. I never yeah. knew. It's like, well, what did you vote for two years ago, mate? <laughs> Absolutely. Now, uh, Emma, please explain to me why uh, the Brexit party's support has been imploding and why this has become somewhat of a traditional two-horse race. Well, for a start, the Brexit party decided not to run against the Conservatives. Um so that did two things. First of all, it's going to narrow their vote quite naturally anyway, because there were a lot of sort of Brexit Party to Tory switchers who, uh, or, or Tory to Brexit Party switchers, who might wanted to vote Brexit Party to put pressure on Johnson to have a more no deal deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but what it also did, because a lot of the sort of Labour leavers that had previously switched to UKIP or Brexit Party, um, they are standing against Labour, but they're not doing it particularly loudly. 
I mean, the one person missing weirdly from my television at the moment is Nigel Farage. Like, this is the first time I haven't seen him all over my bloody telly. Um, so they have been, have been quite sotto voce. And I think what that, what that standing down in conservative seats has done is say, is send a signal saying, you know, guys vote for the Tories because that's how you get Brexit. Mm. Absolutely. Um, let's go on to the Lib Dems. Lib Dem leader Joe Swinson um, told um, Andrew Neil that the gentleman who uh, Boris Johnson is avoiding, that the bedroom tax was a mistake, austerity had gone too far, and that we need to forgive the Lib Dems for their place in uh, the coalition government. Um, when are the British public going to forgive the Lib Dems for their place in the government from 2010 to 2015? See, I don't think what's happening to the Lib Dems is about the coalition. Um, I think it was in 2015 when they got absolutely smacked about. Um, 2017, people weren't really ready to go back to them and Labour had an offer that spoke to a lot of people who would have previously been Lib Dem considerers. But I think the problem is, is that the voters aren't stupid. And they know that with the voting system that we have, it is a two horse race in most places. And if you want to not have a Tory, you vote Labour, unless you live in you know an area where the Lib Dems might do well. Um, so it may be some parts of the West Country, for example. There are very, very few three-way races um, and where there are, Labour are so far doing better because of this squeeze. Uh, you know, you've got to vote Labour to stop the Tories. Hmm. Do you think her anti-Corbyn rhetoric has weakened her position, considering that Lib Dem voters are more Labour inclined than Tory inclined? And uh, well, two thirds of, yeah, go on. Um, that depends on where they are. So those Lib Dems I was talking about in the West Country, they're mm-hmm. more Tory inclined than they are Labour inclined. They need permission to vote for Joe Swinson's Lib Dems. And that permission has to come with a we will not put Corbyn into government note, essentially. Um, so I think for the amount of seats that she wants to pick up, she wants to pick up seats from the Tories. She has to give soft Tory Remainers and... Lib Dems who are further to the right reassurance that she won't be supporting a Corbyn government Seems like the Labour Party um, are promising everything to everybody in in this election why haven't they uh, seen more of a bounce in the polls yes ever since the election was called they've been tracking up but um, not um, violently so shall we say I think it's because people don't trust them to deliver. They, they like their ambition, but they don't see them as particularly effective or particularly um, capable. Um, Corbyn in particular gets very low ratings on things like that. Um, and thus they just think, well, it's all very well you you're saying all this, but you're not going to do it. So is this all part of this kind of breakdown in trust to do with politicians? And if so, does then that then explain the reason why Johnson, somebody who I think transparently people can see is actually a bit of a liar, he can't even, he won't even say how many children he actually mm. has, um, why he has been able to um, be as relatively successful as he has. You don't trust all of them. You might as well just lie. 
Yeah, I mean, this is the classic right-wing strategy of the last, what, 20 or so years, isn't it? So it's exactly what um, the Steve Bannon approach is, which is, you know, Boris Johnson's known to have met with Steve Bannon. You know, you, you make sure that nobody trusts anyone and then you be the most charismatic liar. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a wintry golf resort in Watford, armed like a fortress, what is surely one of the most frosty NATO meetings in recent memory. 70 years on, we are rock solid in our commitment to NATO and to the giant shield of solidarity that now protects 29 countries and nearly a billion people. But that shield does not protect the ego of Donald Trump arriving on Marine One and turning out to be the Grinch that stole the Watford summit. Yesterday he told Canada's Prime Minister to his face that the Canadians were slightly delinquent for not paying their dues on defence. Where would you put Canada in that as they're not... Slightly delinquent, I should say, Canada. Then later, at Buckingham Palace, Justin Trudeau was caught on camera, apparently making fun of Trump and his advisers. America's president is famously thin-skinned at the best of times, and this afternoon he struck back. Well, he's too fast. This week... We had uh, President Donald Trump in London yet again. He's been over quite a lot, hasn't he? It yeah. feels like every six months he's here. I think he has a crush on the Queen. <laughs> it's definitely not reciprocated, I tell you. <laughs> I no, have it on good authority. Queen, Princess Anne don't like him much, does she? <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, nobody does, do they, in terms of people who operate on the world stage. Uh, Doug... Um, how has this played out in the good old US of A? The fact that Trudeau, Macron, Johnson, and Johnson is supposed to be Trump's pal, and Princess Anne, uh, all were having a laugh at his expense. Honestly, I don't think it's having much impact at all because this is not the first time that we have seen some of this. I think it's the first time we've seen... I believe it was four of them standing around together laughing at our president. Um, but it's 
it just confirms what most of us already knew. Uh, it is giving some fodder for Trump's opponents since he part of his campaign for president was that the world was laughing at Obama, which wasn't really the case. And now we had Trump laughed at when he spoke to the United Nations General Assembly, and that was rather startling and embarrassing. This was just another episode that's par for the course. And on some level, it was perhaps a needed comeuppance. Uh, of course, he you know, took his toys and left early because he was insulted, I guess. But it may actually be a useful reality check for the president so that he perhaps sees the boundaries of his antics. I'm sure that's not going to be the case. He, he doesn't fundamentally understand it, Doug, surely. Uh, Boris Johnson didn't even want to be seen with Donald Trump during the NATO summit. Uh, such is the president's toxicity in UK politics. Um, and the very fact that the world is laughing at him, Doug, I'm just kind of taking that this is um, taking that, that this is a result of America first politics. And his kind of lack of comprehension of global affairs and diplomacy. But if you honestly believe that the whole world is trying to screw over America, whether it's Canada not paying its uh, dues for NATO or China uh, devaluing their currency, et cetera, et cetera, then if you're a Trump supporter, you can just brush this off. Exactly. Mm. Uh, also, I, I just want to note, it's not that Canada doesn't pay its dues to NATO, and this is part of the disinformation that has really been problematic. Uh, Trump makes it seem as if the countries owe the United States somehow yeah. mm -hmm. when they don't pay NATO enough. The issue is not what people are, what the countries are paying into the NATO general fund. The issue is how much each country is spending on their own for their own defense. Yeah. There's a big difference there. Well, um, presumably, part of the reason that this has become such a um, hot button for Republicans is because they want to sell these arms that people aren't paying for. Very good point. And the other thing, you know, Trump is claiming, you know, major victory that the other countries are paying more for NATO. And to some extent, that's true, but it's mostly for the NATO administrative expenses, which are trivial in comparison to the overall defense spending. And I think, Emma, you hit the nail on the head. The the GOP tends to be more aligned with the defense contractors who stand to make a lot of money when other countries buy American weapons and military tools. And this is a, an export industry of which us Brits excel at, isn't it? Selling arms. We're very good at that. Uh, just, just, just whilst we're, we're on this, and this is a question to whoever, because I don't know enough about NATO. I thought I knew, but I was shocked to discover that Turkey um, under Erdogan have actually bought Russian arms. I just kind of thought you just couldn't do that, let alone just didn't do that if you're a part of NATO. Well, you never could have done that before. The issue is that because of the way President Trump has disrupted the normal order, there is no boundary, essentially. You know, Turkey has had to be very pro-NATO because that's the alliance that they saw in their best interest. 
and they were diametrically opposed to Russia and largely because of Trump. Erdogan has tilted the other direction and is playing both sides, which is probably more dangerous for us than if they did a clear switch. Mm. What's happening in Turkey is very, very dangerous. It's scary, in fact, because when you think back to where we've had, had actual NATO military operations, Turkey has played a very important role, crucial role. And if they're not on our side anymore, that would be strategically very dangerous. It's also somewhat surprising, and I, I will kind of like back out of this and come on to domestic American politics to, after I make this statement. One of the um, moderating forces in Turkish politics historically has actually been the army. That, that it's actually there, the key institution that upholds uh, Kemal Ataturk and his um, legacy, and that they are quite free of um, nationalist, well, no, they're incredibly nationalistic, but they're free of Islamic politics and they're very secular. So the very fact that the, uh, Erdogan has been able to do this um, is absolutely uh, destabilising when you look at the wider ramifications of NATO and then of Turkish politics. But moving on from that, um, Doug, why has Kamala Harris's uh, presidential campaign failed? Oh, that's sad. Um Mismanagement, basically, it was a combination of uh, she did not get enough traction, and there's lots of possible explanations to that, but she had to drop out because there was infighting within her organization that spilled out into public, which is never a good thing, and I've heard other political observers say they have never seen a primary campaign like this where you've got campaign staff or former campaign staff doing interviews talking about how badly run the campaign organization is. And that just makes it impossible. The fact is that she's getting out at a good time. She probably was very smart to run because she had gotten onto the national stage through her position on the Senate Judiciary Committee. She now has much more visibility than ever before. She's positioned herself really well to either be a vice presidential nominee or a future candidate. And by getting out now, she doesn't suffer a fatal loss in Iowa or anywhere else. Is this a great time for her to drop out? And, and I generally don't know. I must admit I've been somewhat underwhelmed by her campaign, other than her zinger to Biden in that first debate talking about busing. It seemed to me that she was completely and utterly outflanked by, let's say, uh, Buttigieg, who's uh, on the same wing in the Democratic Party as her, who had an absolute command of policy and centrist policies whilst having the language um, of someone who's maybe a little bit more progressive than actually his policies would denote. And then by uh, Senator Warren, 
who has got total detail when it comes to politics. She knows whether you agree with her or not when it comes to healthcare. You know where she stands with it. Whereas she just seemed to be all about the optics. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of colour. I'm going to feel different if you vote for me. I think to some extent you're playing into the expected narrative. The fact is that uh, Buttigieg is to the left of Harris. So is Warren. Harris is a very traditional, progressive, moderate Democrat who has a very solid track record, particularly on criminal justice issues, which are very important. She does have command of the details on such things as health care. I don't but think she, but, she but came Doug, up. She, did have, she doesn't have a single, single, singular policy, which you go, right, this is Harris's singular policy on. Well, and that the- goes to the fact that she is a, this is her first term in the Senate. And prior to being in the Senate, she was an attorney general. So she has not been in a position to bring legislative victories uh, to bear. And that's absolutely been a handicap. She doesn't have a signature issue that she has single-handedly changed. Now she's got a chance to work on that. And that I think would serve her very well. Mm. Uh, Emma, what does the failure of Senator Harris's race actually mean for the, for the democratic party and for the race? Is it, a vi- I would say that this is a victory for substantive policies over vague positioning or is this just a case of the Dems are so white? Um, a little bit of both, probably. Um, Kamala Harris never really found her groove, as it were. Um, she, she, she didn't make a strong enough case for herself to be president. Uh, and then with her campaign just completely falling apart in public, um, you know, that's not really comebackable from. Um, but the optics are not going to look good when next week, as it stands, none of the um, candidates from the incredibly diverse field that we started off with are going to be anything other than white. Um, At the moment, Cory Booker hasn't made it onto the stage. Andrew Yang hasn't made it onto the stage. uh, Julian Castro hasn't made it onto the stage. And Kamala Harris has pulled out. Tulsi Gabbard hasn't made it onto the stage either. But, I mean, that's probably a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) Are we we in danger of saying that diversity just means colour? Because we still, you know, Elizabeth Warren, last time I looked, she was still a woman. Uh, Buddha Judge is openly gay and Sanders is Jewish. So uh, there is diversity there. There is diversity there. But uh, I thought Harris made quite a good point at the last debate about the fact that the Democrats don't win without an enthused black vote turning out. And if there isn't, you know, representation matters. Um, I'm really glad there's a woman who is in the top tier of candidates. I'm really glad there's an old Jewish guy in the top tier of candidates, not least because he was so sweet. I just wish he was a Democrat. (laughs) Well, there is that, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm really glad that uh, it's barely a question about the fact that there's an openly gay man um, running um, but I am less glad that there isn't anyone who is Latinx or black 
Well, I think we need to look really hard at why Cory Booker's campaign Mm. has pretty much gone nowhere. Um, He took a different approach toward the primaries from the other candidates by really aiming at being positive and not overtly campaigning against the current occupant of the Oval Office. And Booker has a really, really long record of public service. There are plenty of things that he's done on a policy front that people could disagree with. But Booker is super solid when it comes to overall credentials. Yet, not only did he get very little traction, but when when people were talking about, you know, the Rhodes Scholars on the stage, they would forget that Booker was too. Mm, mm. There's a reason for it. And I'm sad to say it probably does have to do with the color of his skin. We are not a colorblind country by any means. But interestingly, though, on that note, and this is going to be the last one uh, kind of on this American uh, section of the show, is that Cory Booker is not done well actually with black Democratic voters in in South Carolina. He just hasn't. Uh, And with that core constituency, as Emma says, which is uh, black Democratic supporters, that actually black Democratic uh, caucus and primary voters do not necessarily vote for a candidate just because of the colour of their skin. Historically, uh, those black Democratic uh, caucus voters have been highly pragmatic and want to back winners. Mm. And it was notable that when Obama ran in 2008, that they didn't flock to him at all at first. No, they were actually Clinton. Exactly. They were Clinton supporters, you know. So um, we've got to be slightly be careful about saying this is, in terms of intra-democratic policies, politics, this is all about the colour of the skin because um, black democratic uh, voters who skew slightly older, more southern and are slightly more female um, actually are right behind Biden right now. Well, and, and I, your point is actually very important. It's not that black voters vote for black candidates, but there are some in, some issues that are being talked about more within certain communities. And the Democrats, in order to win, have to address all of their constituents. And so far, Biden is one of the only people who's been on that stage who is really familiar with all of the issues in a way that voters, whatever their backgrounds, can understand and grasp. I think Buttigieg, Buttigieg is working very hard to get there. Warren, I think, is on, on the way. She's certainly made some strides. But uh, that, you know, if, if we think of all politics as, as racial or ethnic-based or religion-based, whatever, that's a recipe for failure. And I think we've seen failures like that in recent elections. I think there is also a difference between um, what black Democrats are looking for in a primary candidate and enthusing the overall black vote to come out on election day. And I think those are two different things. And I think Kamala Harris was more making the point about the latter. And she was trying to sell herself as the answer to the latter. Now, I don't know whether she is or not. But uh, as you say, Royfield, in terms of the primary vote, the black Democratic uh, voters 
are saying, you know, we, we, we basically just want a candidate that's going to beat Trump. We're going to be very pragmatic. And at the moment, they see Biden as the most likely to do that. If things shift around in Iowa and New Hampshire to the extent that they then dent Biden in South Carolina, then you might see that vote shifting and trying to find a different candidate to coalesce behind. And on that note, folks, we need to go to our takeaways of the last seven days. It's that time where we stop talking about politics and uh, we put our arms around our collective fellow man and woman. Uh, Doug, we haven't had you on the show for a little while, so why don't you tell us about your takeaway of the last seven days? Funny you should mention this, but my takeaway for the week is the release of Thanks for the Dance, which is the album that Leonard Cohen's son has just released, completing his father's final works. And I've uh, heard some of it. I have not had a chance to listen through all the way through it. But what I've heard so far is enough to bring me to tears, but also great appreciation for this man who had an indelible mark on modern music of all kinds. His songs have been covered by every genre of musician, and that just speaks to the versatility. And I'm just grateful that I got to see him live, not only early in his career, but uh, close to the end. Do you buy a lot of music, though? I... Or do you stream it? How how do you consume music? uh, I suppose that should be the most sensible I don't buy as much music directly as I would like. The best way that I find to support artists is to go to their shows as much as I can. And when they're selling CDs or merchandise at their shows, I try to buy what I can. And I love going to clubs because you will inevitably hear performers you've never heard of who may be very, very good. And years later, they might actually be on the radio or on Spotify, which is actually a pretty good tool to discover musicians i understand musicians don't get too much out of it uh one one performer was joking that if enough people at the show that i was at uh follow him on spotify he'll get enough maybe for a beer well that's something that's a start (laughs) Uh, and emma why don't you tell us what your takeaway of the last seven days is Okay, so my takeaway of the week is the the film Judy and Punch, which I went to see last night and really enjoyed. It's a fun feminist fantasy take on Punch and Judy. Does both kind of the, the puppeteers, but also the puppet story comes through within the lives of the puppeteers. Uh, it's fully weird, uh, and really fun. My takeaway the last seven days is that the world is a little bit more complicated and uh, institutions aren't necessarily as uh, venally, openly, blatantly uh, racist as as you might think on on first, uh, whilst taking a first look. And I say this because, Doug and Emma, I went, uh, so I travel a lot and I have a visa to be in the United States, uh, a business visa. So it allows me to be in the country for six months of the year. And ever since I've had this visa, my interactions with uh, the immigration services at the US border have been pretty good. I wave my visa and they wave me in and say, have a wonderful time in, in, in our country. I came in last Thursday. It was Thanksgiving and I was having a similarly nice conversation with a border guard. 
And he said, I think we need to go check out your visa, which means you go into the room. And invariably, when you walk into the room, you're just confronted by a sea of brown people. And you just say to yourself, there is a whole load of subconscious racism, or maybe not even subconscious racism going on in the whole immigration process. However, by the time I then came out of that room, I said, things are a little bit more complex than that. Because on at least four occasions, there were families of at least four and five people who were called up to the desk and you can hear the conversations and it's a Suarez family, family the Suarez's and they come up and says, okay, so this is going to be your temporary green card. This is your residence card. Welcome to America. That was the reason why so many brown people were actually in that room because actually they were going through their documentation and making sure it was correct for them to actually to be new American residents. And I went, ha, huh, this isn't just pull all the brown people off the plane and go through all of their documentation. In effect, America was saying, welcome to America. And we just need to make sure that you have all the documentation that you need so you can get a job. And you could hear them saying, this is, and you need to show this when you go for, for job interviews because uh, you don't have, this is going to be your temporary green card until it came. So I walked out of there missed my turkey dinner but I did say it's not so obviously racist than I thought so American Immigration Services I take back my initial thoughts uh, and you actually gave me things to thank on Thanksgiving so that's my takeaway of the last seven days Doug Emma how can people find you on the socials uh, I'm at Emma Burnell underscore on Twitter Best way to find me is on Twitter. I am at SFDoug, and I look forward to hearing from the many folks who are listening. And what have you been up to recently? Because it's been a little little while since you've been on the show. Oh, I've been writing all kinds of stuff. Everything from uh, new ways to screen for cancers so that people stay alive longer. Uh, I've mm -hmm. also been uh, writing about some new wine regions and uh, kind of a melange of topics it's the freelance writer's lifestyle which i love i know little about wine other than it's kind of liquidy and it comes in three varieties white pink or red uh tell me about one of these new wine regions that you've discovered well i am a huge fan of wines from the northwest of the united states and the southwest of canada as you go north from California and head east a bit, you get into very, very dry territory. Uh, mm -hmm. And you wind up with grapes that have to really struggle to grow. So you wind up with very concentrated fruit. And the wines that, that come from places like Walla Walla, Washington, and the Simakillamine Valley in British Columbia are so rich and luscious and in the hands of a good winemaker are absolutely delicious goodness well was it walla walla washington walla walla is a town in washington that is kind of the center of the eastern washington wine country and see now you see doug to me that doesn't have the same kind of resonance and gravitas as saying like the burgundy region or the champagne region or the Languedoc in, in france like walla walla washington i'm i'm expecting fizzy pop fizzy soda i'm sorry 
The difference is that in Burgundy, the wines have been made mm-hmm. there for how many centuries? Versus Walla Walla, where the oldest winery is probably 70 years old, I'm guessing. Mm. Uh, it, this is just a prejudice of uh, the word or words Walla Walla, you know. But anyway, I'm going to move swiftly on because it says much more about me than the wine from that region. So, um, folks, remember you can contact us you can get on the show by going on to midatlanticshow.com and then hitting the speak pipe button which i believe is over on the right hand side you've got two minutes of which you can talk bloviate expand on your thoughts and feelings about anything that you've heard on the show uh if you're a lover of leonard cohen uh please uh call in no no we've had enough of that if you're a lover of leonard cohen love him in silence don't call in and tell us that you love him uh, but if you want to talk about left of center politics or anything else that we talked about, maybe it's wine from the Walla Walla region of Washington, why don't you call in on the Speak Pipe app? And we look forward to hearing your voice in the next episode. Take care. And if you're in the UK, please vote for a Remain party. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.